Okay, Aaron. So go ahead and ask your next question. Um, we, uh, we were talking about uh, choiceless awareness versus the, the Buddhist model of, of making a change. And I wanted to ask if if some of this comes from the sort of Vedantic view of the the big self that's doing everything and therefore we don't exist and and therefore we just have to get subsumed into the big self somehow. Um, okay. I would say so, yes. I'm not really that familiar with the Vedas and, and that sort of thing. But basically, when a child is born, it's born out of control. No one of us had a choice of whether or not we were going to be born, when we were born, what hospital or place that we were born. We have no choice about that. So we start off choiceless, don't have any choices. And then as we grow up in the family that we're in, we don't have any choice about the family, don't have any choice about the house, we don't have any choice about the food we eat, we don't have any choice about the clothes we wear, that's all decided for us. And then eventually, we don't have a choice about whether we're going to go to school or not. That's already ordered. And so uh, from the first five, six years of life, every human being is raised in a position of not having any choice while we have all of these adults, teachers, aunts, uncles, grandfathers, preachers, all of these people that the child has to, uh, to deal with are all deciding everything for him. And we kind of group all of these people together as something that we would call, or maybe um, have various words for it, but it has the idea of an authority, that we are subjected to some authority and that we're under that authority, whether that authority is a religion or a god or a government or a teacher or a school parent or whatever like that. Even when we get married now, we're under the authority of the spouse. And so we remain kind of out of control and that the way that we learn to deal with it is by sucking up. That originally we started talking about using the word sorry. Okay, that sorry is that kind of sucking up that we do to some imaginary now authority that we have in the mind. And this creates um, an attitude of being a victim, being the bottom dog, being the oppressed. And we often respond to that with rebellion. Okay, because we don't like it. We don't like that being oppressed. Very few of us are able to do a job happily, almost always when we're told to do a job by our parents, we resent doing it. And if we resent it enough, we'll rebel from it. And then if we rebel from it a little bit, then we'll feel guilty. And so all of these bad emotions that we have are uh, <clears throat> kind of out of our control because they're natural once we go off the edge. Okay, so let us say then that you're standing on a diving board. 
you've got a choice about standing on that diving board. But once you leave that diving board, you've got no more choice. Gravity is going to take you. Okay, so this is what happens with us is, is that we lose control. We give up our control. We have no control. And so our lives now are operated by a destiny. We give up control by accepting that they have authority. By accepting that they have the authority and we have no authority. But the reality is, is that we've always had the authority. We never realized that we didn't, uh, that we don't think about the fact that we do have choices. And, and so that means that because we don't know it, that's why we call it ignorant. We have, uh, we're ignorant to the choices that we're making. Not, it's not so much that we're ignorant about the choices that we could make, but that we're ignorant about the choices that we do already make. That's an important point. Let's go with that, okay? So, um, in order to introduce this, we have to go for the idea that the Buddha taught about the mind. The mind is the forerunner for all things. Our society has it backwards, and so did the Brahmins. The Brahmins thought that an action was a big deal, that uh, doing an action is like uh, um, chiseling something into a stone or perhaps uh, painting a wooden board with a sign, and that our language, our speech, is very much like writing it in sand or writing it on a piece of paper that can be easily crumbled up. And then our thoughts are like writing in the air or writing in water. They disappear before um, it's even finished. Yeah. Okay. And so this is the idea that we have in our government about laws, that uh, someone has to take an actual action to break a law. For instance, if somebody is, begin is uh, conspiring to, to rob a bank, they go get the equipment to do the bank robbery, whatever they need, you know, explosive or uh, guns or uh, uh, notes or rope or whatever it is. And so they go and they do something. And this would then be evidence that could be used in court. Okay. But we also in our uh, civilization, we talk about uh, mind police. Okay, that you uh, and that uh, they can police our behavior, but they can't police the mind. And so this whole system of thought is all upside down and backwards. The Buddha says, no, that the mind is the forerunner for all things. That if you don't think it, you won't say it. If you don't say it, you don't do it. An example of that is, is that somebody decides to go on a diet but they don't tell anybody that they're going on a diet. And so that diet is really kind of weak. But if the guy tells everybody in his family, he tells his doctor, he tells his friends that he's going to be on a diet, then he's more than likely going to stick on the diet because he told them all about it. Yeah. Okay. So the mind is the forerunner, but sometimes the mind is not enough that it builds up that way. And so the sequence goes that if, if we think it and think it, then we're likely to say it. If we're saying it and saying it, we're likely to do it. If we do it and do it, we're going to build a habit of doing it. 
And we do those habits over and over again, and that becomes our destiny. So from the thought to the speech to the action to the habit to the destiny, this is how we create our destinies. And we thought all along that, no, we didn't have any control over that. But in fact, our victim mentality then became our destiny because mm -hmm. that was the way that we were thinking. And so the whole teaching of the Buddha is a change model in the sense that you've got to change your thoughts and continue to change your thoughts and continue to change your thoughts. If you change your thoughts, then you will change your speech, but you'll also begin to change your attitude and your actions. And this is the idea that they say that in the, uh, excuse me, the, uh, uh, the Mahasi method is, is that if you have insight into something, if you see what it is, you'll automatically change it. And the answer to that is dead wrong. That's not true in and of itself. But let's give some examples that give you the idea that it is true. And that is, is that imagine that you walk into the kitchen and there's one of these new ranges that um, is very hot stove but it's still hot, but you don't see that it's hot because you didn't notice the light was on to tell you that it was hot, okay? And there you put your hand right on that uh, uh, burner, thinking that it's cool and that it's not, and it's hot, and you burn the whole front of your hand. Got to go to the doctor, put some medicine on it and whatnot like that. So it was a big deal, a big wake-up moment, a big education, right? The next time you go into that kitchen, you're going to remember that and you're going to be very careful about putting where you put your hands on the, around that stove, right? Because it was a big burn, okay? Um, and this is the way that, uh, that Mahasi method is supposed to work, that if you really get a load of the problems that you're causing yourself, then you will stop doing it. But if we go back to that example about the burning of the hand, and that is, is that that imprinted us to the point that we still have to take the right effort to not put our hand on that stove. We have to take that effort that it doesn't happen automatically. What will happen automatically is the arm will withdraw from the heat of that fire but that we have to remember that it was hot and remember that it can be hot again. And now I have to be careful to not put my hand in that, uh, on that hot stove. So this is the, um, uh, a really important quality of it is, is that if it burns us bad enough, then it will be easy to remember. And then the effort that it takes will be fairly easy to take because the burn was bad enough, okay? But if the burn is very, very tiny and we don't make much about it, then we'll burn ourselves often because we're not paying much attention to it, okay? That can happen with other things like a gas lighter. It can happen with a knife. And then you build the road of good intentions with all those little burns. 
<laughs> yes. Okay. So, um, an example then would be with a knife that people, if they don't ever get cut badly, then they will continue to get cut often a little bit. But if we really cut ourselves, then we'll start to be more careful with that knife. But we could have also gone through a training. A grandfather who was kind to the child would teach the child how to pick up a knife. You always pick up the knife by the handle. When you hand it to somebody, you turn it to give them the handle. And so there's many different kind of little rules that we have about it, that when you're cutting something and moving the knife back and forth, do not have the blade towards your hand. Don't do this. Do this, right? And so mm -hmm. we teach our children how to use a knife so that they don't cut themselves so often. And but that training of don't hold your hand here, do it this way. Make this choice about how you're going to hold the knife. So we don't have to let the kid stab himself with a knife in order to learn how to hold a knife. In fact, stabbing oneself with a knife is no guarantee that he's going to learn how to control the knife. He still has to be taught. And so um, the idea that uh, just because we have an insight to something, uh, or let us say we have the same insight over and over again, that's still not enough for us to actually make the change that we have to make the change right because the common common machine is not going to suddenly go okay enough with these stabbing insights i'm just gonna cut you open and leave you open <laughs> <laughs> um that's more than likely going to happen by the human mind than the common machine <laughs> uh so getting back then to the point about um, the training to hold the knife correctly so that we don't cut ourselves is really a good way of saying that that's what we need to practice with the mind is learn how to hold and control things so that we don't accidentally cut ourselves. Yeah. And if you just say, well, watch what you're doing that may not be enough. We need to actually teach the child, no, you have to hold the knife by the handle. You have to hold it in such a way that if it slips, it's not going to stab you, that you have to in advance hold it so that when it does slip, there's no damage. So this is actually a training that we have to teach the child in how to hold and control the knife. Right, and also I'm just getting a glimpse of the the attitude is that it's actually not okay to slip and cut yourself every once in a while that's like <laughs> it's not wholesome precisely and um while that may not be a good example because a lot of people immediately know when they cut themselves that that was not a good idea yeah Burning our hands is not a good idea, right. but we can actually do something like that 
and get the same kind of results and we don't learn anything like yelling at our teacher. Yeah. Okay. That we could yell at the teacher and get the, the punishment for it. And then we don't learn anything. We're ready to yell at her again. Just like we cut ourselves and then we kill, continue to practice wrongly and we cut ourselves again over and over again. That in fact, um, almost everything that a human can learn. Occasionally we learn a few things and occasionally someone learns a lot of stuff all by himself. But by and large, most of everything that we've ever learned, we learned because we had a teacher who taught us that. We don't learn English language on our own. We are taught the English language. We don't learn to play a musical instrument on our own. We are taught to play a musical instrument. And some people will say, oh, no, well, I didn't get a teacher. I was watching videos, and that's how I learned. Well, the video was your teacher. Yeah. You had that drum set or that piano and no videos and no music and no teachers and nothing. You're not going to learn how to play that piano no. or that drum. Okay, so we we're, do everything. We're, yeah, we're exemplifying something. And yet a lot of people think that their meditation has to be something that they learn all on their own. Mm. And the answer to that is no. That the kind of person who can learn the kind of uh, stuff that, that the Buddha taught, he actually himself had teachers. He had a lot of teachers. He had a really, really good education. But he didn't get what he was looking for in that education. But along the way, he built some really extraordinary skills. Okay, An example of that would be that a um, an oboe player is more likely to be able to pick up and play a bassoon much better than someone who has been playing a violin, set the violin down and pick up a bassoon, right? Because the, uh, um, the oboe and the English horn is sufficiently close to the bassoon that he can make that transition. Okay, so in that way, we want to practice things that we can do so that when we need to go and apply those skills someplace else, we can do that. And there's a lot of skills that are picked up with uh, certain kinds of meditation, but they don't have all the skills that they need. The oboe, for instance, doesn't have all of the features of the bassoon. Soon has other features to it that have to be learned after we've learned to play the oboe. So <clears throat> this is the, uh, one of the issues with the Mahasi method is, is that they teach a few of the skills. They, skill, they teach the skill of sati, to keep looking, to keep remembering to look. These are two steps of the Eightfold Noble Path, but it's not enough. We have to take the right effort to make a change. That's what this is really all about, is, is that um, we, uh, we practice making a change over and over again. We look at the thought that we have, and we recognize that we can improve that thought. We can make that better. That if we have thoughts of being angry at someone, we could change our thoughts from being angry at them into just forgetting all about it. 
or maybe start having kindly thoughts about that person rather than angry thoughts. Now, that's pretty hard to do. It's better, in fact, to just drop it completely. Come back later. And then if you're still angry at him, then never mind, stop that again. And so um, the, the entire teaching of the Buddha is based upon the change model, and the key to that is the effort, right effort, right noble effort to make the changes that we need to make once we see we need to do. And that is often a, a training. Uh, and going back to the knife, teaching the child how to use the knife, the child's going to, in her excitement, grab that knife any way that she thinks about or any way that the hand has to grab it. And the, and the kind of grandfather has to say, no, you have to hold knife by the handle. You have to pick it up by the handle. You have to hand the knife to someone by the handle. So we practice that over and over again, and fairly soon now the child is just kind of automatically going to pick up the knife by the handle because she's trained that way, rather than picking it up any old way that, um, that comes to mind. So if we can train a child to pick up a knife that way, then we can treat a child to pick up any moment by the handle, by the safe part. In other words, we can be joyous. We can teach the child joy. We don't in our society. Teach the child whatever way the adult knows, even if the adult goes around cutting themselves mentally or with an actual knife over and over again, that's what the child sees. So that's what the child does. And so we now have an entire society of badly trained humans. A whole society of really badly trained humans. Why were they trained badly? Because they were trained badly by people who were trained badly all the way back into the deep dark past. And so um, nothing is going to be automatic. Things don't happen automatically just because we can see that we stubbed our toe, for instance, doesn't mean that we automatically stop stubbing our toes. But if we stub our toe over and over again on the same object, pretty soon we'll start looking out for that object so that we don't stub a toe at least on that thing. Um, so... This is actually now the introduction into the Eightfold Noble Path as a complete method that right sati, to remember to look and then take the effort to make a change is what the Buddha teaches. And that these three things run and circle around each other, right effort, right view, and right sati. These things have to work together. But the choiceless awareness and the Mahasi method, they stop at the first two things. Now, uh, the issue about choiceless awareness is very interesting. It's correct when we, when we understand it all. Well, the outside world and whatever happens in the outside world, if we're aware of what's going on, then we can respond to that choicelessly in the sense of not judging it good or bad 
just letting it be. But that's not the way to train one's own mind. Because in the mind, we have to make choices. And one of the choices that we have to make is stop judging the outside world. <laughs> and, and to start recognizing that, oh, it's the judgments themselves that are causing the problem. Then, in fact, I cause myself a whole lot more trouble by judging myself than I do by judging the world outside. And so choiceless awareness um, is looking at it from one direction and the students miss the important part of the teaching, though it's the inside that has to be changed. And the change that we're making on the inside will bring us to a point that we can accept what's happening on the outside. But if we don't change what's on the inside, then we're going to have very little chance of being able to have the choiceless awareness of the stuff on the outside because we're still in a state of liking and not liking inside the mind. So, back to the practice. One, two, three, over and over and over again. We keep breaking the change and um, by looking by investigating, and we do that when we remember. So we have three skills that are building up, and they, they build and count on each other. That if you have only sati, but no investigation, then that doesn't do much people. But if we take, if we remember to actually look. See, in fact, many times during the day, people will remember to come into the here now. So sati is actually quite common. It just has no power to it. Mm -hmm. It's got no energy in it. No so depth. when somebody hands you a cup of coffee, you take the cup of coffee in this present moment. But the mind still may be full of uh, resentments or griefs or you just ignore the situation. So we will come in and out of this present moment quite often. The question is, is there, are we going to come into this present moment on a regular basis that is controlled and, um, let us say, practiced to really take a look at what's going on in the mind and then make a choice about it? So when you're angry, see that anger and make a choice about it. What would be the normal choice? I would recommend the first thing that somebody does when they recognize that they're angry is to shut their mouth. That's the, that's the big change, is to shut up. <laughs> yeah. Because if we can shut up and be quiet, now we can reflect on, well, maybe there'll be something useful to say eventually, but right now it's better that I keep my mouth shut. This is especially good for men who are talking to their wives. The best thing to do generally is to shut up rather than arguing with your wife. So, um, if we are able then to make the kind of change that needs to be made over, then, th then these three skills begin to develop so that the effort actually becomes easier but we have to remember to keep applying it over and over again. Just like the example of a child in a swing. When we're going to be pushing the child, the first time we push the child, that takes a lot of effort to get the thing going. But then 
each time we push, it gives a little bit more momentum, more momentum so that the child can swing back and forth and back and forth. And now all it takes is just one push. Just at the right time, at the back, when the child is up in the air at the back, we push them one more time, and it keeps going. This is the practice then of Anapanasati exactly that way. And this time, when we're pushing on the back of the child, it takes very little effort. But if we stop pushing the child, then the child, then the swing is going to come back to rest because of gravity. And now it's going to take a lot of effort to get it going again. Yeah. Wondering about how the attitude can be, let's say, let's say we got the momentum going, but we're looking to make it better. If the attitude is sort of, let's say, um, not well practiced, then um, maybe there's doubt that we know how to improve it or where that improvement is going to come from? Actually, you're, you're uh, looking at an, an important point, and that is, is that out of the Eightfold Noble Path, we've been talking about three of them. And so as we take these three over and over and over again to keep the thing going, keep our joy going, et cetera, like that, then the fourth item comes in on the list. And that, that fourth item is the attitude, okay? Knowing that every one of us was born as a victim, raised as a victim, and maintain our victimhood. Even the rich people want more money. How many people in our society do you know who really do feel good about themselves? Very rare. Very rare, okay? And that if you find someone who is very good at one thing, they will still feel incompetent in other things. Let's say a Heisman Trophy winner does not make a good airline pilot, does not make a good senator, right? So we can be good at one thing and, and congratulate ourselves for that. But it's generally something that's uh, mundane, ordinary, not much of value. But we do sometimes when we get a skill going, we know we've got that skill. Okay, and we gain confidence. Here we're gaining the confidence of being able to change our own mind, to learn to control our own mind. And when we do that over and over and over again, we begin to get up the confidence that we can do this. Mm-hmm. This is that fourth item on the list, the confidence that I can, in fact, change my mind. Okay. Now, when so that it's, confidence comes it's a, to it's, proof, it goes ahead. from the ordinary kind of confidence the mu- and the mundane to the, the confidence over the mind. Mm-hmm. Yes, that you can learn to play golf, but that's very limited. You can learn to be a politician, but that's very limited. You can learn to play music, but that's very limited. If you learn to smile, that could be taken anywhere and applied to any situation. That's the, the way that we're looking at it is now that we're going to actually develop the skills 
that are going to be universally useful. But we develop those skills exactly the same way that any other skill is developed through practice, through repetition, through having a guidance of a teacher who's going to show you what to do and how to do it. And so as we continue to practice these three things of flattening the mind, removing the hindrances over and over and over again, we begin to get the, uh, the idea that we can do this. And when that uh, attitude develops fully, it develops into the knowledge that no matter what happens, either mentally or ex uh, externally, whatever it is that's going on that affects my mind, I can throw that out and gladden my mind and come back to this present moment and see things the way that they really are. Now, the, one of the examples that I often use of that is by, because um, this happens a lot all over the world, especially in the United States, it's called a traffic stop. And most, most times when people are getting stopped by the police, they go into panic mode. They're afraid. If we are afraid of the cops. The cops are taught to be bullies. And that's the natural way of doing it. And so there's a whole lot of um, um, videos on the legalities and how to plead the fifth and not let the cop uh, uh, search your car and all kinds of things like that. But there's no videos out there that try to teach people how to be kind and friendly to the cops. <laughs> we always see the cops as an adversary. That's how our society sets it up and that's how we normally do it. But if we recognize that, hey, just because this person in blue is tapping on my window doesn't mean any of the things that we normally set it up to be. So we can roll down the, the window and says, hi, officer, I'm really glad to see you. I hear really good things about you guys, and here you are out at night doing your job, <coughs> and I very it. much appreciate you. Yeah. Okay. That, in fact, uh, Eric has talked about that because he actually um, lived in his car quite a long time, and he would get um, addressed by the police on a regular basis. And he reported back that every time there was never an issue because of his attitude. He had the attitude that he can handle this cop. There's no problems here. But very rarely does that happen. Most times when people get stopped, they think that there's a problem. Oh, poor me. Oh, I'm going to get a ticket. Oh, I hate the cops being out here. And then they go right down that sewer. And so here we're saying, can you remember to treat this officer the way you want to be treated yourself. That's the right attitude. And if we have the attitude, I can handle this cop. No problems, no worries. I can do this. That's the Samasankapa, and that's what makes the whole show work. The four of those things together bring the mind into a unified state the unity or the organization of the mind, which is actually the word samadhi that is often uh, mistranslated as to having a concentrated mind. 
uh, we're looking for a unified mind, a mind that's whole, a mind that's friendly, a mind that is not in competition or at odds with itself or having rules that it can't follow. Then, in fact, there's many um, examples of what a mind that's not organized is all about. A mind that's in doubt. If you're confused, if you don't know which way to go this way or that way, that just breaks apart the mind. I won't do this. I want that. Another one is, is that when we lie, the mind is uh, not organized. That we are, the truth is one thing and what we want badly is another. And so we're divided. If we have a way of bringing the mind into a state of unification, now we don't lie, we're not confused, we don't want anything, we're unlikely to go harm someone, we're likely, unlikely to make uh, sudden moves that the cop's going to be unhappy about. Okay, this is, so that's, that feeling of safety, security, comfort, satisfaction, and now we're adding that extra ingredient of the feeling of success. And I can feel successful even while getting busted. If the mind is capable of feeling that way. In other words, we have to train the mind and we train it in simple things so that eventually it'll be able to do the heavy stuff. Just as lion cubs play fight with each other as a training for what the adult lion will have to do for survival. Okay, so we play with simple things, just sitting there with no place to go and nothing to do, and some garbage will come up in the mind, some th past, some future thought. And the answer to that is, is that see what we're doing and make a change to it. Just like a child or a young adult will go into a gym, and he thinks about, oh, I want to get big muscles and everything, and these 200-pound uh, dumbbells over there is what made people strong. And so he goes over the 200-pound dumbbell, and at best, he hurts himself with it. <laughs> what we need to do is to go back to the uh, other side and, and get maybe a one or two kilogram dumbbell and start doing reps, doing it over and over and over and over and over again to start developing those muscles. So this is what we're actually saying that we do in Anapanasati also is that repetition. It's done over and over and over again of gladdening the mind, brightening the mind, bringing the mind into a state of uh, equilibrium, homeostasis, or uh, other words would be like a state of well-being. Bring yourself into a state of everything is okay, I've got it wired. And so we keep practicing that over and over and over again when there is no real weight to it. So the only weight would be whatever unwholesome thoughts we have. Right. And so we want to practice this in seclusion. Because the heavy stuff is going to be when actual cops come. <laughs> yeah. So we want to practice this in a way that makes it easy to practice so that we get it correctly. The same thing is true with music is, is that if the, even the concert pianist 
got a new piece of music that's got a really heavy duty crescendo in it. He doesn't try to play it at full speed. What he does is he analyzes it and then checks out the fingering and plays it slowly and plays it over and over and over. And very slowly, very slowly, sometimes he builds up to speed. Or in some cases, just because we did it slowly over and over again and built up the muscles of the body, the muscle memory and things like that, then we can immediately take it up to full speed. So the way that we practice is the same way, by slowing things down and practicing it over and and to keep changing the mind from an unwholesome thought to a wholesome thought, or bringing the mind out of the past into the present moment intentionally, bringing it out of the past into the present moment so that we can see what's going on, making change, gladden the mind, and then that fourth sasama sankapa, the attitude, is to celebrate. So now we've got the four things to wake up, look at what you're doing, Make a change and celebrate. Congratulate. Keep congratulating. Keep celebrating over and over again, even though you've got nothing to celebrate much about, even though there's not much to congratulate you for, you're getting into now the mental habit of over and over again, congratulating. Congratulations. Celebrate. You've got it over and over again. And then someday something happens like we get sick. And Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa says that getting sick is an excellent time to practice if you've got to practice already. Here the body is sick and we don't like the body being sick. But we can still nourish the body. We don't have to have the mind sick because the body is sick. We don't have to feel bad because the body is ill that we can practice under pressure. And so this is also part of it that we're actually practicing very, very lightweight in order to gain the value of it um, <clears throat> when things get heavy. Or another way you could look at it uh, kind of backwards is, is that you know that some runners and maybe even uh, tennis players will put sandbags on their ankles and sandbags on their wrist so that they they learn to work with that heavy load so that when they take the load off, they're actually faster. Mm. But the, the racket moves at a certain speed, and if we can train the racket to move at that fast certain speed when we've got the heavy weights on it, then when we take the weights off, it'll be all the faster. But, the, but it has to be the training of done over and over and over and over again, like that. So this is the way that we learn to practice. And the way that we practice in the beginning is to do it with at least amount of resistance as possible. And so this is why a retreat is designed the way that they are, but, want, but retreats wind up being very difficult to do. The Buddha recommended go to the forest, go to the foot of a tree, go to an empty hut, go to a pile of straw, and sit down and with the body erect, start looking at what we're doing, the mind. Bring mindfulness to the fore and start looking at 
the breathing, the body, et cetera, like that. And that's actually the easiest way when we're out in seclusion. But retreats are an artificial seclusion. You've got a hundred people around there that you're pretending don't exist. And they do. And there's a whole lot of interactions going on. Mental movements, all kinds of things. And so we become distracted by the very place that we went to be non-distracted. What do you think about mantras for secluding the mind? Actually, mantras have a value. But the mantras themselves, if they're used too early, don't have as much value as they could have. That basically, let's look at it from the perspective of a wild horse, completely wild horse can go any place that he wants to, and including falling off a cliff, getting his feet stuck in the mud, landing up in the briar patch, etc., like that. So the first thing that we're going to do for our horse is put it into a corral that's safe. Yeah. A place that's got a lot of food, a lot of plants for him to eat, but it's got the fence there to prevent him to go into unwholesome territory. This would be like having only wholesome thoughts to start training the mind that we're not going to go out into the past, out into the future, out into someplace else, and learn to be here now with whatever thoughts we have. Yeah, so we've got a wide variety of thoughts this way. <clears throat> now let's look at it in the sense of taking the horse out of the pasture and putting him into a corral. The corral means now that we're going to have very, very few limited thoughts. An example of that would be like the monks doing their chanting. They chant the same thing over and over and over again, or they chant a long thing that's got a, a theme to it. And that keeps the mind focused within that song, in that place. Okay, and so now we can take the horse and put it into a horse stall where there's very little movement anymore. That horse stall would be then like a mantra. Okay, because we've got a very, very small place. Right. The horse will be satisfied in the stall once he becomes satisfied to the corral, but he has to become satisfied with the pasture first, then the corral. And so an ordinary person who is taking on a mantra, the mind's right. going to rebel from that mantra. Right. Okay, so it's a systematic approach that we have, and the first thing that the Buddha recommends, in, and this is absolutely is to give the horse a pasture only this boundary stay within this boundary and what is the boundary wholesome it's a fairly large pasture right but it is still bound it's bounded and there's so plenty of room to jump out of the way if a cow pie shows up right exactly <laughs> exactly and so we use the pasture for the training and it, you could then say that the pasture itself would be like the first jhana and getting the horse into the stall would be very much like the second jhana or on the way to the second jhana okay uh then in fact getting the horse to stand in a particular pose like, um, oh, many, many statues 
especially of the Civil War, will have men mounted on a horse, and that horse is in a particular pose, right? Yeah. So if we can get the horse to train to come the wild horse out of the wilderness into the pasture, from the pasture to the corral, from the corral to the stall, now in the stall we can teach the horse to maintain a particular pose. He can stand there on his own without the need of the corral. Okay, so and then the, and then you bring the spectators in to distract it. <laughs> right, right. But you couldn't have all those hectator, spectators there in the first place. No, the horse needs to do all of this by, by itself. Yeah. Yes, so that's a good way of looking at it. Yeah, the spectators can only come in after the training is done. The spectators are not there for the training. They're there for the, sh for the show after the training has been done. So we want to go off into, into um, seclusion to do the training. And one of the most important training qualities that we're having here is to become friends with ourselves. Even the dark parts, to become friends with yourself. Okay? So... If you have a particular quirk, whatever it is, and you know you've got that particular quirk, whatever it is, and you're okay with that quirk, whatever it is, and when somebody is um, uh, irritated and um, um, accusing you of having that particular quirk, it doesn't bother you at all. I already know. Yeah, that's who I am. Yeah, I'm fat. You're not going to get anything out of me by calling me fat. I've been called fat my whole life, and now I'm happy with it. <laughs> yeah. But if I don't like being fat, then when somebody calls me fat, now I feel bad. Okay. Yeah. So that's the whole way is, is that we have to train the mind into being happy, to train the mind to be satisfied with ourselves, warts and all. Yeah, it's interesting when... You see the words changing, and then I don't know. It's like you don't you don't know which wart you're on at this point. <laughs> well, whatever wart that we're on, make sure that it is okay. This is an okay wart. I don't have to feel bad because of this wart. Yeah. And in fact, I've got a new toy. This wart. Yeah. That we can see it as a toy to play with rather than uh, something terrible that we have to avoid and lie to people about. Just accept it the way that it is. Uh, this is actually, you uh, mentioned uh, before about the Patty Mork. That's what the whole Patty Mork is really about, is to get... Uh, the young monk to go and confess his wrongdoing in order to be rehabilitated. But in fact, one of the reasons why we don't want to um, admit to our wrongdoing is because admitting it and admitting that it is wrong is almost everything that's needed to make a change. Right. Guess what? Many times we don't want to make a change. Because we don't want to make a change, we'll deny that we did it when we full well know that we did it and we want to do it again. The confession has to do also with the rehabilitation so that we can come out of that. 
also we lie about what we're doing wrong because we don't want to get punished. So here we are, our whole lives, lying about things that don't matter at all. <clears throat> and because of that, we can't do anything about it. And we wind up feeling bad, either because we're getting punished or we're in a state of denial about it. <clears throat> and so learning to fess up, learning to look at our warts, learning to see that we've made mistakes, that in fact, we can't make any progress until we do. Just yeah. like Gawenka says, uh, for the new student, when the mind wanders away from the breath, never mind, start again. Right? Because the students don't never mind when they recognize that the mind wanders away from the breath. Oh, you're supposed to be watching your breath. Oh, I've caught you before. Oh, this is a monkey mind. Maybe this is a bad meditation. I don't think this teacher knows what he's talking about. You hear the sewer that we'll go down into instead of just accepting, oh, well, the mind wandered away from the breath. That's common. Never mind. Let's go back and start again. And so we're developing now a new habit of being kind to ourselves when we're screwed up, rather than being critical of ourselves when we screw up. And if we gain that well, then when we deal with other people screw up, we don't have to deal with them critically either. We can deal with them kindness. So actually we're developing kindness, developing friendliness, we're developing acceptance of ourselves the way that we are. And as we do, that automatically, well not automatically, we have to actually put the effort into making the change of bringing the mind back to the breath rather than following in, oh, this is so hard. So we actually do have to make that change, practice that change over and over and over again until it feels like that that's the, the new habit. Yeah. I feel pretty clear about the thoughts that lead to, to the present moment and to the, the Anapanasati being wholesome. I feel like I have a lot of, well, a certain amount of confusion about um, thinking about things maybe in a more abstract way or trying to hold thoughts that include the past or the future um, and, and trying to determine whether or not where the wholesomeness is or where it isn't. That's part of the investigation. Okay. And you can congratulate yourself in the sense that you're still investigating. Okay. You haven't decided is that wholesome or not. But in fact, that's one of the most common questions that I hear is how do I know when a thought is wholesome and when it's not wholesome? The way that I answer that question is, is that there are some thoughts that we know dead sure dead ringer these are unwholesome thoughts but we don't even think about them being unwholesome until we bring them up and put them in that classification that these thoughts are unwholesome so now that we begin to have them classified that way when those thoughts come up we're not confused about it anymore okay examples of that is thoughts of revenge thoughts of getting even 
thoughts of teaching somebody a lesson, thoughts of straightening somebody out, thoughts of answering that email with another email, okay? Thoughts of uh, commenting on YouTube or commenting on Reddit just to get their goat, right? That's what politics is really all about, is taking revenge. And so when we begin to see that all of our thoughts of revenge, of straightening somebody out, fixing mm -hmm. something, et cetera, like that. Competition. Pardon? Competition. Right. A rematch. Thoughts of competition, thoughts of I'll show him. These are almost always good uh, way of looking at this thought's unwholesome. We know for sure that that kind of thought is unwholesome. Then, um, especially in the sense of cruelty, that we want to take joy in someone else's suffering. Right. Losing them, losing the argument makes right. me happy we, right I, I win the argument I get I'm happy guess what no one has ever won arguments never get won everybody walks away from an argument a loser wanting a rematch because why because think of it like this when you're in an argument are you about to get convinced is the other guy going to win the argument or your job is to make sure that you win and he loses and everybody goes into every argument that way and so you don't win because you didn't get him convinced and he doesn't win because you don't get convinced and so all arguments wind up in both parties being disappointed so any arguments that you can have would be automatically then in that grain of these are unwholesome thoughts. Okay. And then there are wholesome thoughts that we know for sure without a doubt that these thoughts are wholesome. What are some of the thoughts about that would be wholesome? Oh, this is nice. Oh, everything is okay. Got no problems, no worries, everything is all right. Okay, these thoughts are wholesome for sure. And so there's going to be a wide variety of thoughts in the middle that are, um, let us say, part of your practice to gain the skill of the investigation to figure out whether these thoughts are unwholesome or wholesome. And so this is part of the practice that we're in is to determine sure that's an unwholesome thought and uh -huh. how it goes versus and, i'm not sure and do we use the 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 hindrances and the fetters as sort of like a a, a mirror or a guide or how to well the, the actually what we can say is all of these unwholesome thoughts are one kind of hindrance or another yeah that anything that's an unwholesome thought is going to hinder us. Hinder us from what? Feeling really good. Yeah. So any kind of thought that you have that prevents you from feeling good, like I'm going to get even with that guy, is not really all of that good a feeling. A much better feeling would be, oh, well, I can forgive him for that. I can, I can let that go. I sometimes wonder if I'm laughing and if I'm laughing that it must be good, but I wonder if I'm laughing in a wholesome way or not. Well, 
Most of the time, yes. Most of the, uh, it depends upon whether you're taking joy in another person's adversity or whether you're taking yeah. joy in seeing things clearly, taking joy in uh-huh. recognizing the way things are. Right. Now, so it's, it's also a good point whether it's pointed it, at the way things are, whether or if it's pointed at that person specifically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. There's another thing that can be uh, spoken about, and that is is that there are certain words or phrases or thoughts that we can have, and in some contexts, those words, phrases, or thoughts are wholesome, and in other cases, they're not. It's not the words themselves, it's how do they affect us. So we can say, have the thought of, oh, I got to go to town. And that could be a very happy thought. Or we can have, oh, I've got to go to town. Same words. But now I'm I'm not in a happy state. Now I'm in a, so it's not the words themselves or the thoughts themselves. It's uh, the reactions that we have to them that will determine whether they're wholesome. Or let us say whether it's a hindrance or not to me feeling really good. So any thoughts that you have when you don't when you're not feeling really good, those thoughts are probably at least partially mixed with unwholesome thoughts. And when you're removing the unwholesome thoughts, then the kind of thoughts that we are going to have are going to be wholesome. And that there's kind of a list that we have. And that is I feel safe. I feel secure. I feel comfortable. I feel satisfied. I feel successful. And then on the top of that is I feel wealthy. I feel really wealthy. Because that that feeling of wealthy is where generosity springs from. That's the natural wellspring of generosity of is, is that, oh, I can help that person and it's not going to cost me anything. That's mm. how wealthy I am. Yeah, I don't I don't need anything and I've got more to give than I even know. Exactly. So that feeling of wealth actually is when we change it from a zero sum game into a uh, uh, into a win win situation. The zero sum means that if I gain, he loses. If he gains, I lose. But the feeling of wealth is, is that you can't touch my wealth. Right. I'm going to win this thing, so all I have to do is make sure that you win also. And the way that I can win, make sure that you win, is by being generous with you, even if the generosity is out of a smile or just agreeing with the person. So we make friends with others only because we've already learned how to make friends with ourselves. It's really hard to accept other people's warts. Until we begin to understand that we can accept our own. And when we can accept our own faults, then we can accept the faults in others. Hey, we're all alike. We all screw up that way. Right. Whereas if you can't accept your, your own problems, then you're liable to think that you don't have any problems and you're just lying to everybody else. <laughs> and then we become hypocritical. 
Yeah, we're hypocritical because we go around seeing what everybody else is doing wrong. See it ourselves. And so we practice by going to seclusion, going and sitting in our car or in a cave in a mountain or on a, uh, uh, um, a deserted beach or uh, the woods or whatever, get ourselves into a safe environment. Then we practice feeling safe. We have to have a real safe environment. Practice safety. Once we gain the feeling of safety, now we can improve that feeling of safety by going into dangerous situations, making sure that we're feeling safe even in that dangerous situation. Begin to test our limits and find out where our fear actually ends. So there's two kinds of practice. One we do that's easy, that's secluded. Really feel safe, secure, comfortable, satisfied, successful. Then there's the other practice of going in and putting that practice out into the world. Form it. Form it and get good at it. Like we go with music and we practice that piece and practice that piece and we get it right. And after we get it right, now we want to go play it for somebody. But while we're playing it, we're also making sure for sure we're getting it right. That's what we mean by a performance. But a really skilled musician is no longer performing. Now he's just playing music. That's why we call it play because the skill is so um, developed that we don't have to pay attention to make sure that the skill is done anymore. Music just goes out. Yeah, and we don't, don't expect right. the audience to be perfect or to have the right opinions. <laughs> right. So uh, let's, let's wrap this up in the sense of um, going through the, the repetition again is, is that we have to figure out for ourselves what is a wholesome thought, but we do that through the investigation. We do it in the way of, is this thought really worth having right now or not? And make a change. To look, remember, to look to make a change, and then congratulate ourselves. Wow, I feel a whole lot better about Tommy now that I'm not seeing him in the pile of crap. Yeah, I, I caught the unwholesomeness there. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. So go practice. Go practice watching for these unwholesome thoughts and recognize that, oh, you could feel as good as you want to feel. How good could you feel if you felt the way that you wanted to feel rather than feeling the way that you uh, practiced, rehearsed, trained yourself, and become in the habit of feeling? You could feel pretty good. You do feel pretty good, pretty good sometimes. So let's go feel that way often. <laughs> okay. Will do.
All right, Aaron, well, let's finish this talk. Any last things to say? Um, no, just thanks for being here and all the work you're putting into your. This your, is not work. If, I, well, if this was work, I'd start. Somebody's doing putting it. in the work. <laughs> may, may you find great pleasure and joy in your practice so it's not work at all when meditation is work people will quit when it's a great joy when it's a new toy then people keep going with it Okay, Damarano. Good, good talking to you. Good to see you. I can't see you. I don't know if that's my end, but it puts a picture of you, so I wish I could see you, but it's just a picture oh, of you. Oh, you should have told me. Oh, uh, well, next time. <laughs> I don't know. It could just be that it's the uh, my phone and the cell service or whatnot, but that's what I suspected. Okay. Anyway. Okay. <laughs> Did, did my image show up? I just changed my camera. Yeah, now I see you. Yeah, okay. <laughs> if that happens again, let me know. Okay. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was, so I guess, yeah, the last call it was like that too, but I didn't want to interrupt, so. <laughs> okay, fine. When we Good turn the you. camera on, sometimes, uh, when we turn the video camera on, uh, the video record. Sometimes the camera doesn't come. Oh, I see. It does on this end, but not. Okay. Turning the camera off and back on again. Straight again. Okay. <laughs> Great. Good to see you. Alrighty. Bye bye.